I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everyone and welcome to Come for Supper. I'm Alexandra Dudley, food writer, cook and serial dinner party host. So I thought it'd be fun to sit down with people who share that love for food, chat about life and learn a little bit more about how they like to serve supper. I speak to chefs, restaurateurs, artists, actors, authors, and pretty much anyone who likes to entertain. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you click subscribe. And if you enjoy it, rate it, review it, and tell your friends as it makes all the difference. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Come For Supper. Today, we have a very special guest, a restaurateur with over 20 years experience in London restaurants. He has been a waiter, bartender, maitre d', general manager, and operations director. And he is now father to his own family of restaurants. He's written three books. His first, Polpo, a Venetian cookbook of sorts, won Waterstones Book of the Year in 2012, and his others have been equally well-received. To round it off, he writes a witty monthly column for Esquire magazine and has presented his own series for the BBC, duly titled The Restaurant Man. He is indeed the restaurant man. Hello, Russell Norman. Hello, Alex. (laughs) How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? Where have you come from? Kent this morning. Oh, all the way way from Kent. From Pluckley, the most haunted village in the UK. Yes, we we can Mm. chat about that, about your haunted house. It's not, unfortunately. It's it's 500 years old, but I've yet to see a ghost. Most disappointing. You have to keep a lookout then. (laughs) Let's dive straight in. The first time you visited Venice was as a student in 1986. And I read that you didn't really know anything about the place what what it what was it that led you there i was staying with a girlfriend in uh, france in a, a small town called blois and things didn't go particularly well and so i had the whole of the summer looming ahead of me and um and and plans that you know that had sort of fallen apart um and i was corresponding with my <clears throat> newish friend a guy called richard who i'd met at sunderland polytechnic and he was in uh, Venice with his girlfriend and um, sending postcards because, of course, there was no internet or email or mobile phones in 1986. Um, we managed to make an arrangement to meet up in Venice. He'd sort of said, you know, well, come come down to Venice, just jump on a, go back to Paris, jump on a train. So I did, went, went to Paris, jumped on a train. Um, I, I accidentally jumped on the Orient Express. Uh, and the um, ticket collector told me I was on the wrong train. I had to get off and then took pity on me and said, look, just stay in the corridor, don't cause trouble, and um, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll turn a blind eye. So I, I spent the whole journey from Paris to Venice, about 12 hours, I think. It was a slow overnighter, uh, standing up in a corridor um, with a baguette and a small bottle of water, and arrived in Venice with no idea at all um, you know what to expect I, I didn't know that it was a city built in a lagoon I didn't know that it was uh, one and a half thousand years old and had been started by settlers trying to escape the Hun 
Um, I didn't know how beautiful it was. I didn't know its history as, uh, you know, as an art lover's capital and didn't know that, you know, there was a, a tradition of uh, wistful young men seeking inspiration, going back to Shelley and Byron and more recently people like uh, Ruskin and Hemingway. And so all of this I discovered afterwards. I had just arrived uh, um, at Santa Lucia Station, this rather brutal 1930s uh, building in the middle of all this glorious splendor um, and was really confused. I stood on the steps and looked around. My instructions from Richard had been to get the number one bus and get off at Giardini. <clears throat> so I looked around and couldn't see any buses. <laughs> all I could see were boats. Went back into the station and called him and said, yeah, where are the buses? I could only see boats. And he said, the, the boats are the buses, you <laughs> idiot. And so I got on that number one Vaporetto, the bus that goes all the way up the Grand Canal, stops everywhere. Takes about 50 minutes to an hour to get to Giardini. Um, and my tiny mind was blown over those 50 minutes or so as I tried to take in what I was seeing. And um, it, it, was, it was a great way to experience Venice with no preconceptions. Yeah, but it was also very disorientating. Um, it's sometimes called Stendhal syndrome, after Mr. Stendhal, who, who experienced something similar when he landed in Florence, a sort of stupefying um, feeling of awe and wonder, which yeah. stops you in your tracks and, and you know, gives you palpitations and you know, the, the feeling of a panic attack. And I sort of had that. I, I couldn't quite take it in. It was, it was that mind-blowing. And how long did you spend there that time? That was a long trip. I was there for three weeks in the height of summer, August, which is a terrible time to go to Venice. Yeah, really hot. Really, really hot and very, very busy. All the Venetians uh, leave the city because it's impossible to live there. So all the decent restaurants are closed. So it's just, it's just this horrible um, tourist uh, filled Disneyland really in August and so we didn't come into the city uh, we, were, we were out in the east of um, Venice in Giardini and rather than turn right to walk the 20 minutes to St Mark's Square every day we um, got on the Vaporetto and went left to Lido which is an island um, on the edge of the lagoon uh, and the edge of the Adriatic Sea and the Adriatic side has these beautiful beaches and so my first experience of Venice was a three-week beach holiday. Nice. <laughs> Just so mind-boggling. It's very different. And you tell people now, they said, no, because there are no beaches in Venice. Well, there are. Um, so it was, a, it was a very different experience to the ones I've had since. And I think after that three-week trip, um, there was enough of the city that had got under my skin to make me think, I've got to come back here and explore. And when um, was the next time you so went back? So I was back within a couple of years um, I finished my degree and it was top of the list of places that I wanted to go. Um, and I did, I did what all those wistful young men um, did, Byron and Shelley and the likes. You know, I, I went back because of the architecture mm. and because of the poetry and because of the beauty. And, and also my pet theory is the reason that a, a Venice appeals so much is because um, it reminds us of our own mortality. It's a city that's sinking, it's, it's dissolving, it's disintegrating. Um, almost before your eyes yeah. um, and quite literally you know you can touch a building and bits of it come off in your hand um, so once I got all that stuff out my system it was it was much much later that I noticed the, the food okay and what was there was there a meal one meal in particular that made you think I want to do this in London I want to bring this back and do this in London unfortunately the answer is no there wasn't a single meal um, 
and the reason for that is um, it's only it's only relatively recently that I've I've got to know real Venetians and I've had the opportunity to to eat in real Venetians' homes. Um, at the time that I was going to Venice to you know to explore its poetry and beauty, <clears throat> and then when I started to think about its food, um, the restaurants that I went to tended to be quite poor. In mm -hmm. fact, the vast majority of restaurants in Venice are quite poor. It's only you know once you've got to know the city that you you discover the good restaurants, but you can eat very well in Venice if you stick to the wine bars. Uh, the locals call them baccari. Good to know. Um, uh, which is the plural, um, singular, baccaro. And these little wine bars are tiny. Um, they serve small glasses uh, of local, uh, very young wines. And these glasses are known as ombre, um, which means shadow. And they serve little snacks, which are known as cicchetti. Um, and you can eat very well in Venice if you just stick to the baccari and eat cicchetti. Okay. And this was my introduction to um, Venetian cuisine, Venetian cooking. It was eating little discs of toast with baccala manticato, which is a really delicious garlic and parsley-infused whipped cod, or little um, grilled pieces of polenta with sardé and seor, which is uh, sardines marinated in sweet onions with yeah. pine nuts and raisins, and so on. And um, that was my introduction to Venetian cooking. Um, and when you go to good restaurants, and I discovered those later, and when you go to people's homes, you will also discover these dishes, baccala manticato, sardines, or fagato alla veneziana, etc. These are dishes that appear in good restaurants. Uh, they appear as small versions in baccari as cicchetti, and they also appear in the home cooking of the city. Yeah, I was going to ask that because yeah. you... I've heard you say before the best kind of cooking is home cooking. Always. And what about as a child? Were you involved in the kitchen much? Did your parents cook? My mother was a really good cook. Um, she, I was one of six boys and we were all quite close in age. <clears throat> so mealtimes were quite big affairs. And she had a regimented approach to cooking. So Monday would always be sausage pie. Tuesday would always be spag bowl. I, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head, mm -hmm. but each day had its own meal. That's so of the time. And isn't so, it? yeah, we would look forward to a particular meal on a particular day yeah. and dread some other meals and other days. My personal favourite was Saturday uh, when we always had egg and chips. Classic. Just the best. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we 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 ate well and we were fed well for sure. But my stepfather was um, uh, a germaphobe, still is and um, of, of sort of Howard Hughesian proportions. And he was convinced that if any of us dirty boys went into the kitchen, we would contaminate all the food. So we were banned. So I, I grew up and spent my entire childhood uh, not being let into the kitchen. And the only time I was able to get into a kitchen was summer holidays when we spent some time with my grandmother and grandfather over in Forest Gate in East London. And did you did you love it then? Did you? Of course, my God! You know, the first thing that I would do would be as a, you know, as an eight or nine or ten year old would be to get in the kitchen, get a big mixing bowl, throw in some cornflakes, yeah, melt some heaven. chocolate, get, get out recipe. get out the Tate and Lyle golden yeah, syrup. Do you know that. what I mean? Yeah, yeah and definitely. So from from um, yeah from cornflake cakes and rice crispy cakes and very simple baking. Um, um, onwards that that's how I sort of got into food and you know got into my current love of it I suppose but um, not not from the home I grew up in okay and what was your first memory of a dinner party given that we are chatting about dinner parties I can, I can remember my first I'm not sure whether it was a dinner party but it was a it was a communal meal yeah 
communal meal. At, 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 when I was studying at Sunderland Polytechnic, um, I rented a, we rented a house on Otto Terrace um, in the city centre, uh, a huge Victorian terraced house, quite similar actually. You're probably too young to remember the young ones with Rick Mayle and A. Edmondson. So it was... Um, it I have was to a, add it to my it list. Was, it was a very popular show uh, in the 80s and 90s. And it was a bunch of students um, living in a Victorian terraced house and their escapades. Um, so our house in Otto Terrace was very much like the house in The Young Ones. Um, and I used to go to the city centre, Sunderland city centre, uh, to a place called Jackie White's Market, which is still there, I'm told. And at about four o'clock before the market closed at five, everything would be sold off cheaply. So I'd just buy whatever was, was cheap. And I'd go home and experiment. Um, and I had a, a copy of Mrs. Beaton's. Yeah, um, also classic. Very, I have a copy of that. And I, I sort of just taught myself how to make very simple dishes, you know, shepherd's pie mm-hmm. and um, uh, cocker van and so on. And on this particular occasion, I can't remember what it was that I was cooking, but it was a big one-pot dish. But we didn't have a pot, so I did it in a massive saucepan <laughs> on the stove top. And I remember cooking certain ingredients, then taking them out because I wanted everything to, you know, have texture and yeah. uh, and flavour as well as you know coming together as a single dish. Uh, and so it was it was a little involved, but you know I was very keen to make it um, to make it good and to make it memorable and to please the five or six people that were eating. And we were <laughs> we'd set up a table in the uh, uh, in the room next to the kitchen, which also connected to the corridor. It's a massive house. There's a really horrible carpet in this part of the house. But we cleaned the top of the table and you know, thought, you know, we're just kind of a big feast on this nice clean table. And I remember bringing the saucepan carefully out to the table, holding the handle with both hands, yeah. not wanting to let go of this precious cargo. And the um, the, <laughs> the handle oh, was no. loose. <laughs> it didn't f- it didn't fall. Uh, it, it was even worse. It sort of just tipped upside down. So the whole of the saucepan part, the pan part of the saucepan, not the handle just flipped 180 degrees so that all the contents fell onto the dirty carpet. And so we didn't eat. You didn't eat it. I was going to ask you. We thought, thought, you know, we looked, can we scrape the top off? What do we do? Funny enough, Richard, my friend from Venice, he he was sharing the house with us. And he remembers that moment too. It must be etched in our minds because we were so hungry. Yeah, I bet. And quite poor. We, you know, we scraped together pennies, literally, to get a few ingredients to make something nice. And then we, um, we sort of, we fell at the last hurdle. Well, I fell at the last hurdle when I dropped it all. What did you do? Where did you go? God, I can't remember. I think we just smoked Egg and, and drank. Chips. Yeah, okay. No. So you had to have had a very colourful um, career, I would say, in the London restaurant scene. What was your, and many jobs, what was your first job in London? Um, I came down to London, um, back to London. I was born here and um, I was in Sunderland uh, for three years studying and, and then for another year after I'd finished my degree, I was working in Easington, which was a, a mining village in Durham, in the county of Durham. 
Uh, and Richard um, was doing a post-grad in uh, politics at the LSE. Mm-hmm. And then he'd gone back to his parents' house in Oxford. And we were corresponding. And I'd had enough of working in Easington. So I thought, I'll come back to London. I'd phoned my grandmother, remember, in Forest Gate. And um, she said, yeah, yeah, we've got a spare room. Why don't you come down? And Richard said, oh, that'd be great. Why don't we, you know, sort of see if we can find something decent to, you know, do with our lives in London. So I picked him up from Oxford in my battered old um, Triumph. Um, and we unloaded the car at my grandmother's house in Forest Gate. And then the next day we went into the West End looking for jobs. Just handing out CVs? or Not even that. We didn't have CVs. <laughs> <laughs> it's just we walked in literally to places. Got a job, got a job. We, w- we went to a few agencies, um, did some terrible agency work. And then we both walked into a place called Old Orleans, which was a chain restaurant in Covent Garden. Um and it was a sort of New Orleans chain, but yeah. you know the thing was it was Old Orleans, so everyone wore waistcoats and bow ties and boaters and stuff. They played Louisiana jazz and served gumbo, etc. And the um, the American uh, bar manager took a, a, a sort of shine to us and said, "Great, you guys are great. Come and you know work behind the bar." And so that was my first job back in London with Richard. Richard lasted like two days. I lasted a little bit longer. We were hired as cocktail bartenders and this Mm -hmm. was the era of Tom Cruise in cocktail. And it was also the era of flair. So How bar- much flair did you have? Bartenders didn't just make drinks. They threw bottles yeah. behind their backs and caught them. And yeah, it's just it was all that really terrible um, sort of circus skills bartending. And we were put through this training program and uh, we were terrible. I dropped far more bottles and glasses than, uh, than I made drinks. And so we were then both shoved into the dispense bar and we just made drinks for the restaurant. It's quite a busy restaurant. Okay. Um, Richard said, yeah, I've had enough of this, went off and did something else. Um, I stayed at it um, and I sort of enjoyed it. Um, but the bit I enjoyed most about it was the, uh, was the sort of banter and camaraderie and, um, you know, feeling of belonging to a, you know, a little group of people that... Yeah, it's like know, a family, really, working yeah, in a restaurant. it's a family of misfits, I think. Yeah, and I think re- restaurants, so I think restaurants do, unfortunately, attract misfits. Well, I think often it's kind of a second... You know, there's that joke, isn't there, about whether you're, when you're an actor, it's kind of, well, well what, what mm. restaurant or kind of what bar are you working yeah. in? Or yeah, a musician, exactly. like yeah. what's your what's your actual job? People yeah. will say as well. So many, you're quite right in this Lots country. Of I mean, there are you know, if you go to France or New York, Paris or New York, you'll you know you'll find professional yeah hospitality um, people. Um, but it's very it's more difficult to find here. Anyway, one of the uh, one of the things that I liked about um, Old Orleans was that around about four o'clock, all the waiters from Joe Allen who were finished, mm-hmm. and the waiters that were about to start their shifts would would meet up and enjoy happy hour cocktails. Great, I love that. Before before, before they before, went to work. Before going Brilliant. to work, smashed. Brilliant. And um, I got to know them over you know a couple of weeks, and then one day one of them said, "We've got a, we need a you know we've got a vacancy. Why don't you come downstairs and work at Joe Allen?" So I went down and did a trial shift and loved it. I thought, my God, this is like a proper restaurant. And so without realizing it, I'd, I'd t- sort of taken up my second job in hospitality. And I you know, thought, well, this is something that I quite enjoy and something that you know, I might want to do for a bit longer. So that accidental job up in Old Orleans ended up with a serious job down in Joe Allen. Um, well, you were waiting. I was, well, yeah, I was waiting and then I was bartending. Mm-hmm. That was a bit of a promotion down in Joe Allen. 
um, and then Maitre d'ing, which was the um, which was you know, the sort of top of the tree. There was a very traditional New York structure to the management of that mm-hmm. restaurant. <clears throat> they didn't have general managers and restaurant managers and so on. It was just Maitre d's, waiters, it's uh, still and there. bartenders. They, still they've the moved like one street, now? but it's yeah. yeah, it's it's still there in in essence, even if not in actual location. In you know, in sense, in the sense that it's. Uh, its spirit is in its new location as well as mm-hmm. all the staff and the pictures. Yeah, and the pictures. <laughs> Just different bricks. Um, and so, yeah, I was there for quite a long time, from around 1990 to 97. Um, and it was in 97 that I'd sort of reached the top of the um, hierarchy at Joanne, couldn't really go any further, um, and signed up with an agency who found me a job. Uh, working for Conran at the Blueprint Cafe. Yeah. And then from there I worked at Circus, which is on Golden Square where Bob Bob Rickard is now. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and then in 2002 um, was headhunted um, to open a restaurant called Zuma in Knightsbridge, a Japanese Very restaurant. Very grown up. Yeah. And I was, I was getting a bit more grown up by mm. that point, I think. Um, and then one thing led to another. I'd, you know, sort of, I'd met Mark Hicks um, yeah. a couple of years before them, and so I'd see him occasionally, you know, in Soho. And I got a call from Mark Hicks. Um, I guess this must have been in end of 2005, beginning of 2006. He said, "What are you up to?" I said, "Nothing at the moment. I'm, you know, deciding what to do next." He said, well, "Come and speak to us. Um, the company's just been bought by Richard Caring, and um, we need an ops director." And so that was that was my last. That was my last role as an employee. And that was that. That was Onto that. a very grown-up job. Well, that was very grown-up and, yeah, it lasted until uh, the um, uh, world economy fell through a yeah. hole in the floor, left by Lehman Brothers in 2008. And I'd been thinking and I'd been encouraged by my friend Richard uh, to to open my own place. Been thinking about it, and um, how long were you at um, the Caprice Holdings for? Just under four years. Okay. So my own place, you know, wasn't something that I'd had at the front of my mind, but I realised it was there at the back of my mind mm-hmm. because I've been going still, you know, back and forth to Venice a couple of times every year just because I loved it, and um, I'd, at some point I'd started to collect menus, artifacts, yeah. knickknacks, and um, without any real knowledge or intention of what I was going to do with them, just sort of putting them into a box and when I thought about what I would do in London as um, my first restaurant I've realized that I've been researching it for about four or five years without realizing it I've been collecting everything that I needed and so that idea was Polpo Um, and so in 2009 around about um, spring around about this time of the year 10 years ago so spring 10 years ago um, Richard and I started to look for a site and eventually found the site on uh, Beak Street in Soho. Which you designed, I, I read, you designed yourself. Yeah, if you can call it design. What I did was <laughs> I, um, I followed the um, accidental uh, design uh, aesthetic of Venice. Yeah. So <laughs> Venice um, has a lot of exposed brickwork because it's battered by the um, winds from the Adriatic and the... Um, the Mora, which is a wind from the Dolomites. It's surrounded by salt water and salt water air. <clears throat> so there's a lot of corrosion. And so even, you know, perfectly rendered buildings will end up looking like bare brick 
shockers within just a few years. And that was a look I wanted for the interior of the restaurant. Um, my favorite places in Venice were all several hundred years old and had not really been modernized. So there were a lot of antique light fittings and lots of old yes. furniture. And um, I just took all of my um, uh, indi uh, design indicators from my favorite places in Venice and couldn't afford a designer for Be for the Beak Street restaurant. So just decided to, um, to make it look as much like my favorite places back in Venice as I could. Let's go back to 2009 when you've just mm. opened Pulpo and you're serving a kind of menu of small plates, which these days are kind of common. Everyone's serving small plates. I think we're sort of crying out for a kind of just one plate of food half the time. But back then, it was, it was really relatively new. Did, did people get it? Yeah, I think so. The, I mean, the tradition had been there for a very long time. Anyone that had been to a Greek restaurant would have been familiar with, you know, sharing plates. You go to a Greek restaurant and order your <clears throat> tara masalata and your tzatziki and some pita bread and we'll have some souvlaki. Tapas style. And absolutely. Yeah. It's um, meze and tapas. You know, these traditions have existed in food cultures, European food, food cultures and Asian food cultures for, you know, for centuries, if not longer. Um, and the food culture in those Venetian bars has been there for centuries too. This is not something that I invented. And so I just took the aesthetic of um, eating small plates of tasty food with a couple of glasses of wine that you find in the backstreet wine bars of Venice and brought it to Soho. Um, and I think at the time um, there was a, you know, a little bit of um, uh, amusement and bemusement and confusion. Uh, and people would say, well, is it sort of like tapas? Is it Italian tapas? And I said, well, no, it's chiquetti. It's, you know, it's, it's a genuine culinary tradition that exists in a genuine city in the northeast of Italy. And all we've done is bring it to London. So we weren't, you know, we weren't reinventing anything. We weren't uh, presenting our twist on something. It was just a, a wholehearted um, and uh, loving uh, import of something that I enjoyed in Venice to London. And what about the Venetians? Did the Venetians, the Venetians who came to London, what did they think of, of it? Venetians, Venetians got it completely. Okay. And Venetians still do when they come into Pulpo. They say, well, it's hard to put our fingers on it, but there is something they love it. intrinsically yeah. Venetian about this place. Not just the food and the dishes that we recognize. And after all, they're very traditional dishes. Yeah. We, you know, we haven't done anything crazy or special. These are dishes you'll find any, anywhere. Um, but Italians don't. Italians come in and say, well, this is an Italian food. Mm. And we have to patiently say, no, you're right, it's not. Yeah, it's you know, Venetian It's food. Venetian. And um, it, it sort of, I suppose it highlights the difference, once again, between the regions and the very stark difference between Venetians and the rest of Italy, mm. um, which, you know, I see every time I go back to Venice and, yeah. and Venetians will be very keen, would be very keen to explain to you why this is. But th there is a, a, a marked distinction between Venetian cooking and Italian. And you were one of the first people to do the no bookings policy, which again is something that we're kind of just used to <clears> these days. In fact, most, not most good restaurants, but mm. a lot of the great restaurants that you really want to go to often kind of operate with that no bookings policy. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of reasons for that. We took bookings right at the start because we had no idea how it would go. We and that's what you whether. normally do in a restaurant, of course. take bookings. And what we discovered really quite early on was that the people that had uh, the wherewithal and the people whose lives were ordered enough to be able to make a booking three or four weeks in advance were the people that would come to the restaurant and hate it. 
they would be um, expecting something that we weren't. They would complain about the loud music, the tables that were too close together, the waiters that were a bit scruffy and you know s slightly dazed looking. <laughs> they would complain about the wine being poured into small tumblers. I love that. That's one of my favorite things, <laughs> I think. And so... You know, this was happening, and we were getting lots of complaints for these people that were booking, you know, weeks in advance and coming quite often from out of town. Often, because the reviews were really good at and the beginning. So yes. I think, that, yeah. I mean, that must have brought in I think that so, kind of yeah. white tablecloth diner as well. Well, yeah. I think some people might have been expecting that, but um, the majority just expected something that we weren't and um, just, you know, really didn't uh, get on with the very scruffy nature of Polpo. You know, it's a, it's a, a relaxed mm. and enjoyable supposed to be a relaxed and enjoyable experience you know i wanted pulpit to be a bit like a, a, a fantastic dinner party uh fused with uh, you know a, a bit of service a, 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 yeah a night out at a really sort of crazy uh, club there's a restaurant in venice called paradiso perduto for example which was a big influence on pulpo um, and it's chaotic, and the, you know, the music starts around nine o'clock. The live music starts, and mm -hmm. the musicians end up sort of, you know, standing on tables, and they're pushed back to the walls. And <clears throat> there's this sense of, of danger, and uh, uh, and um, the, the sense that the unexpected is is definitely going to ha ha happen at some point. You just don't know when. It's it's very hard to describe. And you know, there were times at Polpa when it was like that. So mm -hmm. I can imagine people coming from the home counters and expecting a, a special meal for a special occasion would have been disappointed. Meanwhile, the door was opening every night and people were coming in saying, hi, table for two, table for four. And they were the people that we built the restaurant for. These were, you know, cool London types, Soho um, uh, workers, people that lived in Soho, people that played in Soho. And they weren't able to come into this restaurant that we'd built for them effectively. And I said to Richard, we've, this, we've got to do something drastic. And I think that that thing might be to stop taking bookings. Because there were other restaurants do doing that. Barafina. Barafina was doing yeah. that. Yeah, Barafina was doing it very successfully. I mean, they had to do it because there are 26 mm. stools around a bar yeah. and that's it. I mean, how do you take a booking for four <laughs> on a, you know, on, um, on, in a restaurant or in a, a bar like Barafina that has a linear um, arrangement of stools? You'd never speak to the person yeah. sort of at the other end. So it was, um, it was necessity being the mother of invention, I think, in Barafina's case. And also Sam and Eddie's model was um, Cal Pep in Barcelona, yeah. which does exactly the same. Um, but with Polpo, um, it was it wasn't something that we started out doing. It was something that we were. Um, Do you take bookings of, now? Uh, only at lunchtime. Okay. Which we always did actually. We always took bookings at lunch, even when we stopped taking bookings in the evening in two thousand nine. At the end of two thousand nine, and the, the 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 reason for that is that at lunchtime, you know, people need to know when they're doing it they need to yeah they need to get back to the office or go and pick up the children or um you know get the train and so that yeah there needs to be a little bit of order and um predictability about lunchtime but mm -hmm. in the evenings i just you know i wanted that chaos and i yeah. wanted that you know that that feeling of not knowing what's going to happen next um and it frustrates some people i understand that and i you know I, my response then and, and now um, is the same, which is, you know, I agree. It could be a real pain in the ass if you're trying to book yeah, for a special but then occasion. Don't go there, I guess. But yeah, for a special occasion yeah. meals, I would strongly recommend you go to a restaurant that does take the yeah. things. Just come to us when you've, you know, when you've uh, not got any plans at all, and then someone at the pub says, hey, let's go to Polpo. <laughs> yeah, let's go That's and eat. My ideal customer, absolutely. <laughs> someone who's decided to come to Polpo 45 seconds before. <laughs> 
And what about cooking at home? Do you, uh, if you have people over for mm. supper, let's say you've got 12 people over for yeah. dinner, all the time in the world to prepare as well. You can have all the time. What, okay. what do you cook? Do you do small plates? Is that what you do at I home? I do to start with, yeah. I do uh, a selection of uh, cicchetti, um, uh, just because it can be done in advance. And also, I, I really, I'm, I'm a greedy person. I don't mind admitting. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I like to be able to eat immediately. As soon as you get in. I Absolutely. Agree. So I um, I prepare stuff that can be eaten as you walk through the door. Mm-hmm. So you're taking your coat off with one hand and you've, you're able to reach for that little bacala manticato with the other. So the, what kind of things are you making? So I just go, you know, just do what the um, the, the, the um, wine bars of Venice do. Uh, bacala, um, uh, sardi and seo, and re- really simple things as well. There's a place called Domori, um, just by Rialto Bridge, by the market, mm-hmm. Rialto Market. And it's been there for centuries. It was where Casanova used to hang out. Um, standing room only, like most of my favourite bakery. And uh, they do these um, fantastic little salty snacks. Everything in, in Venice in the bakery is on a toothpick. It's on yeah. a skewer. And it took me a long time to realise why this is. In Spain, they count the toothpicks and that's how they charge you. Oh, that's so clever. That's like sushi plates. Yeah, they exactly. They count the plates. Um, in Venice, the reason everything's on a toothpick is so that when the bartender handles it from the display cabinet to the plate, he doesn't yeah, it's clean. touch it. It's clean, exactly. So one of my favourites from Domori is a pickled onion with a brown anchovy wrapped around it and a couple of capers skewered. Nice. So it's like a sort of salty kebab of pickles. Yeah, yum. <laughs> capers, anchovies and pickled onion. So I'll do some of those. Um, I'll make um, something simple like a tuna and leek um, uh, crostini which is based on one that I enjoy at a place called Cantinoni Ghiaschiave just behind Academia in Venice and then there are some other seasonal cicchetti that I love that I love there's um there's a lovely little sandwich that I like to make which is um, made with cren uh, which is horseradish mm-hmm. and uh, chopped radicchio so in the winter when radicchio is in season and if you can get hold of the beautiful treviso yeah, tardivo really. which is the long frondy one um, that chopped up and mixed with a bit of creme fraiche and um, horseradish is a fantastic filling um, and then other sort of simple stuff you know um, some good hams good salamis and good cheese and then for um for, main for, for, well, for main courses, I'll do the Italian thing of having risotto or uh, pasta. And I'll always do something simple and seasonal. So at this time of the year, a um, little bit early for peas, but in three weeks' time, um, at um, on the 25th of April, for the Feast of St. Mark in Venice, everybody, um, all of the homes anyway, will be preparing um, Rizzi Abisi, which is a beautiful, soupy spring risotto of peas and mint, sometimes yeah. a little bit of pancetta. So this time of the year, I might pre- I might prepare Rizia Busy, and then I'll follow it with something really simple, like um, you know, beautiful um, grilled fish, or sometimes poach. Actually, Venetians like poaching. Because you're their doing fish. four full courses. Then are you doing no, no, pudding no, no, as no, no, well? No. Are we having pudding? We we will have uh, little tiramisu pots that I will okay. have prepared the day before. Yeah. It's all about the pre prep. Yep. Or. Um, Venetians don't really go for pudding. They like cake. Yeah. They like they have quite ice a sweet cream. Breakfast. Yeah, they do. It's very classic. So I'll I'll just I'll just prepare um, tiramisu the day before, or I'll just buy some really fantastic ice cream. Mm-hmm. 
and say, look, couldn't be bothered with putting, but this ice cream is the best. I'm, I'm delighted to see, I know it's it's a massive company, but their ice cream is fantastic. I'm delighted to see that Grom, yeah, have, Grom made it, are fantastic. have made it to the UK. So my dinner parties now are um, for, yeah, forever going to be easier at that course. And what about kitchen failures? Because we all have them. Have you ever had a time where you've been entertaining in particular yeah. and something's gone really wrong? Yes. Um, very early on in my um, uh, culinary adventures, uh, I was I was making risotto and just lost track of how long it had been in and made the, f- the fateful error of not tasting. And I just thought, oh, yeah, that's done. That's great. And served it up, and it was completely raw. Raw. Yeah. God. What did you do then? Just we had pizza check. from the freezer. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Thank goodness we had pizza in the freezer. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Always good to have pizza. And it was, only, pizza. It was, it was there were just four of us, so yeah, my my embarrassment was, um, uh, you know, it was confined to just three other people. Yeah, that's all right then. I think I probably <laughs> so had worse still, than that. But I know if any if, if any of those people is listening, I mean. I'd still be mortified to know that they remembered that. I, at the time, I just wanted, I just wanted to run away. Were you kind of a known? Were you, were, no, were no, I was, no, not at all. Good food at this point. They were. Well, I, I, they were expecting good food just well, as any, just probably. as anybody, just yeah. as anybody would expect good food if they were invited around someone's place for dinner. Um, so that was that was one failure. Um, I've got to have failures all the time. You know, Kitchen I, failures. I mean, it's partly kind of experimenting, yeah. really, isn't it? Well, you try not to, don't you? When you're cooking for a number of people, you think, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and stick it. to the basics Absolutely. as well. And, you know, but just play safe, stick to what I know. And the other thing, I mean, you know, my, my cooking at home these days is is always very simple. Mm-hmm. You know, I will never stretch myself. Um, and I think it's it's important as well to have you know a backup, and also important to have dishes that you're preparing that have a, a very wide margin of error. Yeah. Um, Savory food sou- has that much more. It I does, think, yeah. Than you know, sou- I was going to say souffle for you know for twelve people is yeah, just risky. a disaster waiting to happen. As yeah. with anything kind of pan fried fish, unless you're Pierre Kaufman and pan fried fish, yeah, yeah anything yeah. fussy like that. Yeah. I I'm a big believer in that. And the books, mm. you are also a very successful author, cookbook author. Thank you. Um, was that kind <clears> of was that on your bucket list? I've always I've always read um, my degree was English um I'm a you know I'm a I'm a word lover Mm -hmm. and I've always enjoyed writing so when Pulper was a success and um it's we started to get a bit of interest from publishers about writing a cookbook I was definitely up for it yeah I, I I got an agent very quickly and um we had a short list of publishers who were interested and I went with the most literary. I didn't. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't go with the one that was offering the most money. That's so interesting. Um, I went with the one that I thought was the most literary, and with the publisher that um, that had the editor that I thought I could work with best, and that was Bloomsbury. Because they're quite wordy. <clears throat> yes, you know, there's they are. an element of story to them, which I really like. When there is, and I was quite surprised at the edit process, particularly. I don't mind mentioning his name, Richard Atkinson, who was mm-hmm. my editor for Polpo. You know, I, I, he he asked for a he asked for a. Uh, manuscript of between 80 and 120,000 words. And I thought, that's a novel. Wow. So I did. My manuscript was, was a good 90 plus thousand words. And he spent the first um, several weeks, months, I think the process was in the end, cutting those 90,000 words down to 45. And I remember saying to him in, in 
uh, exasperation one day, Richard, why the hell did you ask me to write 90,000 words if you cut it down to 45,000? He said, because I only wanted the best ones. Oh, that's brilliant. That's such a lovely answer. And I, um, I learned a lot about the editing process and learned that you sort of have to go through this, uh, this strange um, uh, sort of melting pot of emotions with your editor mm. from loving him to hating him to loving him again and then hating him again. You know, at one point I felt <clears throat> I felt like I was suffering from um, Stockholm syndrome. It's you know, I, I just, I, or, or a version of it. I don't know. It's, it's very odd indeed. But at the end of the process, I remember reading the finished manuscript and thinking, "Wow, this is so elegant, and neat, and yeah, tight. It is. It's a fantastic uh, book, and mostly um, uh, and largely, I should say, down to, to to Richard's editing skills and his ability to see the uh, the nub. You know, to see the the heart of the meaning and get rid of all the extraneous all the fluff fluff exactly did you write it for the home cook the book no um for uh, polpo mm. oh so in one sense yes of course because all cookbooks are for the home cook yeah i don't i don't think anybody well ever... i think there are some that are kind of for more of the kind of the slightly more experienced cook i definitely wrote it for the amateur mm-hmm. yeah um so the, the you know the recipes are you know not complicated but you know they were never complicated to start with uh, there isn't a chef in Venice. Well, there is actually <laughs> these days, unfortunately. <laughs> but <clears throat> let's say ten years ago, I could say that, I could say this with confidence: there isn't a chef in Venice that would put a smear onto a plate, or yeah. that would a have foam. a foam. Maybe a foam. That, I mean, or they, a they have, of course, inevitably found their way into some restaurants. Or gel. Um, exactly, uh, and the traditions, you know, because they have uh, come through centuries and well, millennia in Venice's case, actually. And they've been passed down from generation to generation. These are, you know, home cooking um, yeah. classics. Um, and when you go to a Venetian's home, you don't expect a smear or a foam or any sort of structure or crossed chives yeah, <laughs> or, or a big bunch of um, of pea shoots dumped on top as a garnish. You know, none of this happens. It's just very simple food served very simply, steaming hot. And in very large portions with, you know, with lots of salt and lots of parmesan. And it works. Delicious. So the last, last kind of three questions, Mm. I guess. What's, what's in the pipeline? For me. you, right now. Any more cookbooks? Yes. I owe my current publisher, Juliet Annan, mm-hmm. at um, Penguin Fig Tree, I owe her a proposal that she was very enthusiastic about when I um, had lunch with her a few months ago and told her what I was thinking about doing. She said, absolutely, love the sound of that. Yes, please. Want to see a proposal tomorrow, if possible. And I still haven't. Have you started it? I have started it, and I've even got photographs and uh, I mean, that's, recipes. That's, that's, that's yeah. good. That's I mean, that's pretty much halfway there for a proposal, right? Completely, yeah. So that that's next for me in in the book stakes. And if she likes it, then my fourth book will be with Juliet at Penguin Fig Tree, which would be great. Um, I've got a few other ideas for books as well, which are nothing to do with food. Okay, but, but still can't. to do with Venice. Uh, no, nothing to do with mm-hmm. Venice. Okay, Italy. No. no. Okay. Oh, I'm excited. (laughs) And Um, then for all us kind of, well, dinner party novices, three things that you would advise to always have in the cupboard just to kind of whip up something fantastic. Anchovies. Yeah. Definitely. Tinned anchovies. They don't need to be expensive. If you've got expensive anchovies, then you should just eat them like, um, you know, Cantabrian anchovies. Mm -hmm. Then you should never cook with them. You should always eat them raw. 
or do what Rose Gray used to do um, a couple of mornings a week for breakfast and do what um, Alarco, my favorite baccaro in Venice, does every morning. Take um, a cold slice of, um, like a lozenge-shaped slice of toast. So if you can imagine slicing a French stick on an angle. Oh, yeah, toast, with you. Toasting them, yeah. then making sure that they're cool. This is quite important. Then getting some butter out the fridge, using a potato peeler and taking a, a shaving yeah. of cold butter, laying it on top of the cold toast. And then taking two plump Cantabrian anchovies from your tin of Ortiz, for example, mm-hmm. uh, draining them a little and then just laying them on top of the cold butter. That's how you should eat anchovies. Okay, yum. a revelation. Delicious. But going back to your larder um, question... Uh, tinned anchovies, just the you know the bog standard tinned anchovies, just so that you can make something like uh, bigolian salsa, mm-hmm. which is my favourite store cupboard uh, recipe. So this is bigoli spaghetti, um, which is sort of buckwheat, but if you can't get that, just any spaghetti will do. Um, it's quite good with bucatini actually, which is okay. the quite thick spaghetti with a hole all the way yeah, through the yeah. middle. Love that. That's kind of what I thought you said the first time, but okay. So um, you get a couple of big onions. And you chop them roughly or just slice them, actually. White onions, red onions. White onions. No, no, white white onions are the best because they're milder and sweeter. And um, you put a big glug of olive oil into a saucepan uh, or a frying pan over a low heat. And you cook the onions on a low heat for about half an hour. And I know that sounds crazy. Low and slow. Yeah. And you coordinate your pasta to make sure it finishes the same time you're going to finish your sauce. Um, so when your onions are translucent and almost um, falling apart, you add the anchovies from the tin with all the oil, squash them into the onions with the back of your wooden spoon, um, turn up the heat a little, add a couple of glugs of white wine and reduce that. Um, your pasta should be finished cooking. You've reserved a cup of cooking water, of course. Mm-hmm. You've chopped some flat leaf parsley. And then you put the drained bucatini into the sauce. Make sure it's completely combined and uh, add your cooking water if you need to loosen the sauce. So I know why you do parsley. that, but why, why do you add the cooking water? Can you tell tell everyone? Why do you add the cooking, the cooking water? Because water, water, it's, it's, it's starchy and salty and it's got a little bit of viscosity mm-hmm. and it's just the perfect um, liquid to improve and yeah bring everything together improve your sauce and bring it together the the problem that us brits have had with pasta for a very long time and um i still see it is that we think of the pasta and the sauce as two separate entities Mm -hmm. and so you'll get a big bowl of spaghetti all clean and white and then you'll get a big spoonful of your ragu on top if you go to (laughs) a bad restaurant or if you go to a, a clumsy amateur cook's home um Whereas in Italy, everything is always combined. Mm-hmm. You would never serve pasta separate from the sauce like that. Um, and the cooking water from the pasta is important to, uh, to help that process along and bring it all together. So that's anchovies for your larder. Mm-hmm. Um, you should um, always have um, tinned... I'm trying to think what else I always have. I always have tinned um, chickpeas. Okay. Um, chickpeas are known in Italy, in certain parts of Italy, as um, carne di poveri, the poor man's meat. Okay. Pauper's meat. Non-gender specific um, pauper's meat. And they're just, they're, they're fantastic. If you don't have uh, protein and you want to add a little bit of weight and ballast to a dish. So I'll quite often drain my um, chickpeas, my tin chickpeas, and um, put them into a salad. 
Um, one of my favorite salads, nothing to do with, um, with polpo, but it, um, it, it comes from um, a fancy Italian uh, hotel. I'm not sure where in Italy the hotel is, but it's, um, it's a scala salad. Uh-huh. So this is um, uh, it's a diced salad, so everything is chopped very, very finely. Uh, and it's diced iceberg lettuce, provolone cheese, and salami. Okay. Um, and it's mixed together, those three ingredients mixed together with a bog standard creamy Italian dressing, even something from a jar. If, you know, if, we're, if we're staying with larder recipes, then here's, here's a good example. And then you just sprinkle your drained tinned chickpeas on top. And it's a fantastic salad. Yeah, really easy, easy I to could, prep I ahead. Do, I, well. I know it's breakfast time now, but I could, <laughs> I could do one right now. And um, then last thing. Last thing in my larder. Um, it's got to be pasta, of course. Yeah. Um, there's so much you can do with um, pasta, you know, even if you've forgotten to prepare. So one of my favorite, um, oh shit, I've forgotten to buy any proper ingredients, is, um, is spaghetti with garlic and chili. Yeah, so simple. So, uh, absolutely. So this is um, uh, spaghetti or pasta, d'aglio e olio, and uh, garlic, chili, um, olive oil, um, with lovely al dente uh, spaghetti or linguine. Um, I always put too much chili in. I've got Yum. A, Fresh chili or dry I've got, chili? I have, I, have a, I have a strange relationship with chili. I, I, I used to not be able to eat it. Um, it would cause my neck to come out in a big red welt. Okay. Uh, I would get heart palpitations. Uh, I, I was probably having an allergic reaction yeah, to it. Yeah, that's quite scary. It was, but I quite enjoyed it. I, you, know, you get a kick from chili. It's like you get a high. Natural I, high. I, I, yeah, no, I do. Yeah. I, I've have, have, you, have you ever had and that kind of weird ghost sauce? All the time. Stuff oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it, you yeah. really feel like you're you're kind of like somewhere between so wanting I, to be sick. Even though even though I've had a troubled relationship with chili and it's it's made me feel you know quite weird in the past. I've persevered and I've now cured myself of the if it were if it wasn't your allergy. body to love it. Yeah, I think so. So now I, I love chili. I get a real kick from the, from a simple dish like that with. And I buy my chili from uh, from Yato Market. <laughs> it sounds really okay. it sounds really pretentious, but they have um, little bags of chili that tourists love to be able to take away. And dried chili, like flakes yeah, dry, or yeah. whole chili? No, 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 dried flakes. And they have okay. three different varieties. They have one that they say is perfect for bruschetta. They have mm-hmm. one that they say is perfect for spaghetti, and one that is smoked. Um, oh yeah, I love. And so chili. I buy those three different um, uh, chili flakes, and then keep them in my recycled Bon Mamon. Uh, jam jars <laughs> nice I do that as well so the only reason I buy that jam really is to keep the jars I, it's so not fun. just me <laughs> yeah no I'm I really glad do to, it glad to hear it Alex so chilies, anchovies pasta yeah and then any three people in the world alive or dead to come for supper who would they be and why okay um, I'm going to choose dead people yeah um, just because when someone's alive, you sort of feel like you know them a bit better because you know you can read an interview or you know yeah. they're, they're sort of part of the real world. But I'm far, far more fascinated with you know with those people that have achieved a sort of myth-like status since their death. So um, Frida Kahlo yeah. would be my first yeah. um, choice, just because you know her art has always fascinated me. But I think you know her greatest artwork was herself, really. Yeah. You know she created this persona which has persisted and still beguiles and and enchants. Yeah, she's um, got that icon status, doesn't completely. she? Completely. And there's, you know, when you look at a photograph of her or when you look at her 
as she painted yeah, herself. Her portraits. I feel like I'm sort of looking deep into her yeah. soul. <laughs> um, my second uh, dinner guest would be David Bowie. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, my gosh. Um, not um, just because of, you know, the, the fact that he was a hero of mine when I was growing up and, and has been a hero of mine through my adulthood. But I also think he might get on quite well with Frida Kahlo. I yeah. think there might be a bit of a spark there. Um, so, I'd, you know, like like all good dinner party hosts, you're not just cooking, you're Entertaining, socially hosting. engineering as mm-hmm. well. You know, you're putting good people together. And I think, you know, we have to, as dinner party hosts, think about the dynamics of our dinner guests. Um, and then my third, um, so I've had a painter, a musician, um, I'd probably have to choose a writer and I'd go back to, um, I, I think I'd go back a couple of centuries to Byron mm-hmm. and invite Lord Byron. Um, Gosh, I wonder just what because he of, think. well, just partly because of his poetry, partly because of his bad boy persona, uh, partly because of his um, incredible life. You know, this guy had, he was born with a club foot. He, you know, was a, an amazing swimmer. Um, he lived on a, a, an island and worked in a monastery, taught himself multiple languages, but he also lived in uh, and loved Venice, lived in and loved Venice. Um, when you when you sail up and down the Grand Canal on the Vaporetti, you quite often pass the plaque, uh, the sort of marble circle on, uh, no, actually it's a rectangle on the side of the palazzo where he stayed. And it's incredible to think that he used to dive in the canal at that point and swim right to the end of the Grand Canal across St. Mark's Basin, which is pretty much an ocean uh, in terms of, you know, its um, currents and, yeah. um, and the way the waves behave, uh, to Lido and back. How far is that How, if you're swimming, the average person? Um, I'd say that's a good three, four kilometres. With a club in quite, foot? In quite, with a club foot in quite challenging uh, waters. And also, you know, it's in not just challenging waters, but um, it's the it's the city's sewage system. Nice. You know, everything, everything tips out into the canals, even to this day. How old was he when he died? Would the people, the, would they be 30s. there? So they'd all, would they be there the year that they were died, or would you have David Bowie in his prime? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I hadn't thought that far, Alex. I've got to, I'd, I'd, yeah, in their prime. Let's say, let's say um, at the height of their... Um, uh, career creative powers creative yeah. powers yeah. love it yeah. and what would you cook them you give your classic kind of risotto ice cream yeah I don't think food would be the focus I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't think it would be too bothered as long as we had something tasty to keep us occupied so yeah probably I'd do something that was very easy for me to, to cook yeah I actually find risotto these days despite my disaster that I described earlier I find risotto incredibly therapeutic. Yeah, I agree. Um, and if there were only three dinner party guests, Frida Kahlo, David Bowie and Lord Byron, then... Um, then it's could, a great yeah, one. Yeah, they could, they could hang out in yeah. the kitchen with me. Yeah, I love that, kind of hanging out in the kitchen. Yeah, just pass that oil, would you? Thanks. Yeah, yeah put yeah, some just, wine in. Yeah, get some yeah, talk. Perfect. Oh, could you open another bottle, please, David? <laughs> yeah, that'd yeah. be fantastic. Frida, would you get the, the Parmesan out of the fridge, please, darling? Thank you. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Gosh, I would love to be at that table. Thank you so much, Russell. That was brilliant. Thank you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. 
From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.